0: Today, I'm joined by Will Eden. Will is currently an entrepreneur in residence and an investor in the biotech space. He studied economics at Dartmouth College and worked as an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York during the financial crisis. After the Fed, Will moved out to the Bay Area and worked for a digital health startup and a personalized medicine startup. He then worked with Peter Thiel for six years, leading his personal early stage biotech venture capital investments team. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Will. I want to get started uh, with something that's been top of my mind recently. I recently invested in and had a podcast with uh, someone who is building a cr- new cryonics company and it's uh, focused on pets. The idea is to build out you know, some real infrastructure. So, you know, if we build it out with veterinary hospitals um, and make it a kind of a norm with pets, we can eventually, you know, migrate that to hospitals and then it can be an option just like, you know, cremation or getting put in the ground, you know, crash could be a third option instead of like, flying out the, you know, Arizona and your brain's liquefied in between, right? Uh, it's a <laughs> uh, interesting approach. Um, yeah. So I, I'm going to talk about longevity. You know, where do you think we are right now in terms of longevity research? You know, do you think we'll hit escape velocity in your lifetime, in my lifetime? Or uh, are, should we be betting on, more on chronics and brain preservation?
1: Right. So I will say, I think that it is possible um, that it's within our lifetime. Uh, But I do think that the field would have to look a little bit different to probably get there. Gotcha. Um, I am a little pessimistic on what things look like right now. Uh, That said, fields can change very quickly. And I do think that we've hit a tipping point where certain aspects of the aging question are coming into mainstream focus. Um, So, you know, I would highlight things like senolytic drugs and stem cells have really kind of entered the mainstream. And uh, you know, I do think those are pieces of the whole puzzle. Um, and as soon as you get pieces of it, I think uh, the potential for that to sort of cascade and to hit all of the other areas of aging that we'd have to solve is certainly possible. And I think the main thing that we've needed as a field is something really convincing, right? We do have some interesting studies in rodents, some interesting studies in, you know, much simpler life forms which don't really resemble humans um and those were stunning enough to get like the research community interested in this question but we need a clear convincer on a living older human right now right like if you could take someone with like completely white hair and then turn it brown i think folks would be like oh wow right or if you could somehow give them like a drug that just eliminated all of like the wrinkles on their face or something right um and, uh, you know, obviously I'm suggesting something more cosmetic, but that's the thing that we see all over, right? Like, like, right. we see the signs of aging everywhere. We see it on our own face when we look in the mirror. And I don't think a, a convincer has to be cosmetic, but I think that that's one that would just be like really shocking, right? Great, great sales uh, pitch, right? <laughs> really, really
0: very legible sales pitch, right?
1: So that said, I do think that cryo is probably more likely to work in the short term. And by work, I mean we get to a point where the cryo preservation is good enough that we think the brain structure still contains all of the info that was inside someone's head. Gotcha. In terms of reviving someone from cryo, that's probably a harder problem than the life extension problem. Not necessarily, but possibly. Um but I think trying to get the preservation really, really good
0: is probably the easiest problem in that whole space. Gotcha. So it's just a lot more, it, to me, at least it seems a lot more straightforward. Like I, I think we kind of, we have a pretty legible roadmap and it, we may have one for, you know, longevity as well. I just, I don't, I know less about it. Um, I, I'm curious, do you do you see it as a, as a talent problem? Is it a money problem? Is it an approach problem? Oh boy. Right now, is it all three? I mean, we've seen a lot of capital going into the space, right? Um, in the last like five years, but, but yeah. What's your sense of that? Yeah. You're
1: asking the trillion dollar question. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think different fields are bottlenecked on different things. Um, And with aging, if you take the sense approach, right, there's like, you know, seven or eight things you kind of have to do. And if you miss any one of them, you'll still age and die. And if you basically buy that model, which I don't think is totally crazy, then um, then yeah, the problem is effectively that there hasn't been enough buy-in very broadly, which means you don't get the money and you don't get talent and you don't get the leadership involved, right? And uh, I would say in terms of the biotech space as a whole, before I started investing in the space, I sincerely believed that the bottleneck was something like, Good ideas. Oh, interesting. And sometimes funding when there was a good idea. But now that I am actually investing in the space, it's a lot more often that I see a great idea. And I look at the team and the company and the structure and how they're trying to execute that idea. And I think to myself, man, this really isn't going to work. I love the idea, but I don't think that this is going to succeed in its current form. And that's a very hard thing to see and that's a very hard message to give founders because they really hate to hear that right Right. (laughs) (laughs) um but like i do sincerely believe in biotech as a whole you know it comes down mostly to talent and leadership holding us back i would say uh currently in longevity i don't necessarily think that's true Um, i do still think there are some like paradigm level breakthroughs that probably still have to be done and most of even the basic research going on isn't really directed at aging, qua aging, right? It's mostly not directed at the fundamental levers that we could possibly, you know, pull here. So that one I think is actually a more complicated problem and isn't just a talent problem.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And on the talent problem, the leadership problem, is that just a, on on the leadership problem, is that a a pure management challenge where people just aren't competent managers? And on the talent side, is it that they're just, um, you know, all the smart people go to work at OpenAI or go into physics or something like that, and there's some weird sorting mechanism going on?
1: That is one hypothesis, right? Um, I don't fully understand what's going on. Uh, Some folks are theorizing that there's just fewer talented and competent folks overall in the world. Um, And there's something about the maybe the, like, education system, something about the system of incentives. Something about how things are too like rigid, and it's possible that there are just less people like this overall period. Um, the other hypothesis is basically the one you're saying, which is there are tons of folks who are very talented, but they're all going into other fields, right <laughs> um, and uh, I do think that there's probably some of both here going on um, but you know the simple fact of the matter remains if you're a really talented ceo and founder right where can you make the most money the most quickly probably doing a tech startup yeah it's not doing biotech right and it's certainly not doing things like building nuclear reactors right Right. so i think it has to be at least some of both i definitely think given the increase of the world's population it's shocking that we don't have more like extremely talented people right that's very very weird yeah. So something systemically is going on that makes them less common, at least as a fraction of like total population.
0: Well, and it's really weird, right? Because I've got um, right beside me, I've got one of Jim Flynn's books. I've been going through, and you know, yeah. IQs in the West have been going up over the last, you know, fifty years. Maybe you know, maybe they're leveling off in the last ten. Um, uh, kind of unclear, but it seems like people have been getting somewhat smarter. You know, like their pure like horsepower side of things. It seems like people are getting smarter, yet we do seem to have less Shakespeare's or like true like outside talents um, now. Do you think things are, are just kind of getting harder or something like that?
1: You know, I really don't like that hypothesis. Um, <laughs> it's not really a helpful hypothesis at the very least, even if it's true. Right, exactly. Um, it may be true. And I think certain aspects of it have to be true, right? Because like there, there obviously are only a fixed number of ways to like put atoms together, right? So like clearly... As you'd like find more of those combinations, there are fewer of them left. Right. But like, that isn't to say that, that we haven't, um, been overlooking something super fundamental either. Right. And I do try to think about like, well, what would a true kind of paradigm shift actually look like? Something like the advent of computing that sort of came out of nowhere. And it's sort of also like tied into like math and other things, which were kind of well understood, but like as a paradigm for how to think about the world, that really kind of just overhauled things, right? Like it, it really was just this very different way of seeing the world and computation has allowed us to do all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, And, you know, I think that it has been less impactful than a lot of the things that we discovered a century back. But it was still kind of like a ground shattering, just absolute paradigm shift. And and it's hard for me to imagine where the next one of those comes from. But I would also be absolutely shocked if we've discovered everything there is to discover either. (laughs) And if you think about just hypothetically the most efficient use of every atom, we are so far from that point that the idea that we have somehow picked all the low hanging fruit seems absolutely crazy to me, right? if there were a super smart AI, like here with us right now, would they really be like, yeah, you guys picked all the low hanging fruit. I cannot improve the world anymore. You've done it all. No, absolutely not. Right. Right? That's absolutely crazy. (laughs) So from that perspective, I think thinking of it as like, Oh, well, everything is just hard now. Isn't as you say, very helpful. And I also think that it's not super likely to be true. Um, You can find historical parallels here. So in the like early 20th century, you know, we had invented the steam engines many, many decades back. Yeah. And we discovered electricity and we were starting to get like, you know, lights powered by, you know, power. Right. And there was this feeling of like, yeah, well, we sort of invented the, you know, obvious low hanging fruit. (laughs) Right. And um, that clearly was false that clearly was false. You know, we ended up having this kind of mid-century, you know, and you could argue why that period happened. You know, maybe it was the Second World War. Maybe it was like the movement of peoples because of the Second World War that sort of brought like ideas somewhere. It could be just that like we were all forced to sort of step up, right? And um, there was just this incredible explosion of tech that I would say that was kind of the last time the world really kind of got, fundamentally reshaped like if you look at sort of the 1950s onwards you start to see what looks like the modern world right if you look at you know pre-world war ii like you can see the the sort of very beginnings of that right but it was still very very early like we didn't have space flight right i mean um so for all of those folks back in like the 1920s who thought they'd just discovered all of the low-hanging fruit they turned out to be completely wrong right? And can we tell whether we're in, you know, the post-World War II era or the pre, right? And I think that's actually very hard to tell. And I think we could all look back 10 or 20 or 50 years from now and 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 just be like, wow, we were so dumb. There was all of this low-hanging fruit everywhere.
0: <laughs> and like, I wouldn't be surprised to see that world, right? Interesting. It, so, so do you think like perhaps and like, This is really difficult to even even think about. So like, I I don't know how useful the question is. But, you know, do you think it's something where people just like aren't trying as hard or maybe just aren't as inspired or something like that? Um,
1: I think there's something going on there. Um, I do think that adversity can cause humans to really step up in a big way and humanity as a whole. And yet, you know, we also try to um, seek to minimize adversity in our lives. And I don't even necessarily think that the right thing to do is to increase adversity either. Uh, I do know some folks who think like that, like, <laughs> Oh, well modern humans are, you know, weak and soft and right. we just need some, you know, giant global war to <laughs> whip us into shape. It's like, okay, but the human consequences of that are just insanely horrible also. Yeah. Um, but that said, you know, what could then sort of shake us out of the stupor either. Right. And i think some of what we're seeing i mean certainly now um there's a major war going on in europe and it was a war that a lot of people said probably wouldn't happen and i think the sort of outside view that like nothing ever happens now because we're in the modern era i think that's been very well falsified we've we've had a global pandemic we have a massive war with one of the world's largest, most populous economies that's now sanctioned, that's cut off from the world. I mean, this is absolutely crazy stuff. And I feel like if you could, you know, go back to to us, you know, 10 or 20 years ago and and share some of the stuff that's happened, we would be shocked. (laughs) Um, I do think it was much easier in, say, the 90s to be like, yeah, history is over, guys. Um, And now I think today it's very hard to actually make that case. So I think there's some chance that like we could be snapped out of our stupor through um, just events in the world unfolding. That doesn't mean we need to start them. Uh, that certainly doesn't mean that we have to make
0: the world worse in order to you know
1: change this thing.
0: <laughs> so, so maybe something like you know we look at Ukraine and and what's going on there, and we you know maybe people start to think, wow, like things really can get worse. Maybe we need to work harder to make things better, or something like that. Something like that. I mean, I
1: think that alone isn't enough to shake people out of complacency. Um, but it's a sign that much bigger things like that could actually happen. Right. Gotcha. And I do think that um, having a tighter feedback loop with the physical reality of the world is one of those things that pretty reliably produces progress. Now, maybe that's not the kind of progress we want. Right. Maybe the progress we'll make as a result is like killer, you know, drones and like completely autonomous weapons powered by AI or something, right? Like there's there's horrible things that can happen, right? Um, So I don't necessarily even think war is like the answer, but historically it's been one of those things that has sort of like lit a fire under us as a species to step up. And a lot of those things can then get repurposed after the war also. So I don't think war is always bad, but I do think it's basically always net bad. And so I don't I don't I don't think that is the answer. I guess there's there's a question of, can, can we produce a sort of cultural, psychological shift ourselves, right? Can we do that without any kind of outside force prompting it? I'm relatively optimistic that this is possible. I guess I would have to really think back to what, what kind of precedents there have been for that. But I do basically believe that if we change our mindset, it is in fact possible to think about the world in a way that makes us much more likely to discover great ideas. And I do think that, you know, unfortunately we live in this very tightly regulated environment. So I do think that that there are headwinds and I do think that those headwinds will sort of make it less likely for us to sort of purely endogenously make that sort of shift in mindset. And I think it can also make it hard for, you know, funding to actually get to those, you know, truly, Um, earth shattering type projects also. So can we fully do it endogenally without some outside stressor? I do think it's possible, but I do think that that's also going to be a major challenge. And I do think people like Elon Musk, for instance, right? Yeah. He's a complex figure, like all humans are, but I think that he's doing something important, which is inspiring people with engineering. Right. And Definitely. we haven't had those kinds of heroes in our society for a long time. And having examples like Elon Musk that we can all look at, I think is actually one of the things that can start to kind of shape us up as a species.
0: <laughs> that, that, that's great. And, you know, part of the reason I started this podcast was to talk to people that are. Or have found, you know, $20 bills on the sidewalk. And just, just to kind of put it in the ether that it is possible. Nice. You know, there, there are areas, you know, where you can innovate. Like there are things you can do. And just encourage people, you know, like a lot of times the market is efficient and, you know, there, there's not alpha to be had. But, you know, every once in a while you can find things. And I think it's really important to look, especially if you are, you're a smart person. So, so I'm curious. Uh, we, we talked a lot about uh, longevity and um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about biotech and, and how it differs from kind of investing in traditional tech. Sure. It, it seems like it, it's quite difficult, right? There's a lot more players and it's it's a lot more expensive to get through. Um, there's, there's all kinds of complications which we could go through. Um, what has been the biggest challenge for you in investing in biotech? Um, it seems like to me, one of the big challenges is understanding that there's people up the chain you need to sell to as well. Hmm. So, you know, it, there's shorter feedback loops in tech where you, know, you can go straight to a customer. Right. But maybe in biotech, you know, you have to invest in scientists and then it's got to go to this like contract research organization and it's got to get through the FDA and mm-hmm. on and on and on and on. Um, have you found that to be the case? And what have been the kind of the, the toughest challenges to solve for you know, successful biotech companies?
1: Yeah, it is absolutely true. Um, So I think I'll just start off by saying there's more to biotech than just drugs. And I think for drugs and to a certain degree devices, the dynamic that you're talking about is absolutely true, right? You have a phase one trial, you have a phase two trial, you have a phase three trial. These are real important company events that you have to, you know, actually gear towards both on the financing side and the team side and where you focus your science, right? Like, so... From that perspective, I basically concur with you that there are these other factors which make it intrinsically more difficult than something like tech, where you can push a button on your computer and everything that was in test gets pushed into deployment. And suddenly, you know, your billion customers are using the code that you just wrote, right? That is absolutely crazy, right? There, There is no parallel to that in bio whatsoever and you can envision a future world where you can like update some drugs or like personalize something and like your desktop printer will like, produce the exact vaccine. Like sure, great. That's a possible future world. but That's not what biotech looks like right now. The other thing I will say though, is uh, if you're doing a biotech business that is catering to other biotechs, that's much more like a normal company, right? In that you do have customers that you're selling to right away. And some of my absolute best investments have been in companies like that, right? Where you aren't having to cater to the FDA, you can actually sort of like push out new technology to all of the biotechs that you're working with, right? So um, I don't think it's quite as binary outside of the drug space specifically. Gotcha. But uh, in terms of drugs, which is one of the things that we care about, yes, it's a very different world, right? Very, very different. And I think there are a few things that make it relevantly different from tech. One of which is that sort of staging, but I think almost more importantly, it's more about the sort of capital requirements of it. It costs a lot of money to even design one antibody and then put that into patients for the very first time, right? Just to get there, you're talking eight figure checks. Yikes. Yeah, so in tech, there's nothing, comparable to that (laughs) (laughs) nothing like and you know this is basically an artifact of the way that we've chosen to set up our system and i do think that there could be a very different version of the world which sort of doesn't involve the fda looking quite like it does now right but i also think that that's a very different world that is going to be very difficult to get to from where we are now but at the end of the day, if I could wave a magic wand, I would love the FDA to basically
0: certify things as safe, but... And just leave the efficacy. It's like, we're not worried about that. Yeah. Just let, the, let regular consumer protections kind of handle that.
1: Yeah, totally. And look, like that would obviously also result in a world where a bunch of stuff that's not very good medicine is also being sold, right? Right. We already have that in like the supplement space. Right. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And Some people are angry at the supplement space. It's like, oh, well, you know, it's like hard to know what's even in these supplements and most of them don't do anything. But like most of us don't really care. Right. It's like, yeah, I'll take supplements if I feel like it. And I'm not really going to stop someone else from like wanting their supplements. Right. And we could get into a world where basically pharma looks more like that model. Now, I think there would be, you know, slightly more serious layers between you and just sort of like buying heroin off the, you know, counter. But I do think a world where drugs were developed and looked more like supplements is probably a world where we get more drugs. And in the end, if we get more drugs and can try more things, I think we have an ecosystem that is more likely to innovate and actually get new good stuff. Whereas right now, that sort of feedback loop is very, very loose. And what this means is we end up doing a lot of testing drugs in animal models, which partially reflect humans, but also partially don't. Right. And so you get this weird situation where a ton of the kind of fundamental R&D is being done in vitro or in animals or even in like computer modeling now. And the odds of that stuff translating into a clinically useful drug in humans is just exceptionally low. It's very, very, very low. Again, some models are better than others. If you're testing a like antibiotic in another mammal, okay. You probably know pretty much exactly how that will work. If you're trying to test a cancer drug in an animal and then apply that to a human, I mean, good luck, right? right. The odds of that working are so small, so small. Just shot in the dark.
0: Is the answer more of challenge trials or something like that?
1: I think challenge trials would be awesome. Uh, Obviously, you can't do a challenge trial with like you know cancer. <laughs> that would be horrible. Right. <laughs> We're <Whoops. laughs> um, oh, gonna irradiate your whole body and then give you this <laughs> cancer drug and see if you survive. <laughs> 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 I mean, I guess consenting adults and all that, but I think that that world would look horrible. Um, no, yeah. I think I think very few people would uh, <laughs> would actually volunteer for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I do think that the FDA doesn't want to stand in the way of good drugs. And I think that they do very much go out of their way when it comes to orphan diseases. Interesting. And and that is the one area where you see the most sort of progress in terms of short timelines. Right. Gotcha. So if you're treating an orphan disease, you might be from your first human trial to a fully approved drug in as little as like four years. Oh, wow. Now, mind you, in some other world, maybe that could be, you know, like one or two years. Right. But that's pretty different than the common story, which is, yeah, from like coming up with a drug to actually having it in patients worldwide being like 20 years. Unfortunately, that is actually all too common. And that's the kind of thing where I just start to think, I mean, man, could we do this better? Right? I mean, uh, it's tough. Yeah. And I do think in this particular case, the fact that we have actually found all of these other drugs... All- already because of the way that we've set up the system, I think that is a larger barrier in biotech than it is in other spaces, right? So if someone wants to make a clone of Facebook, it really just comes down to do people want to leave Facebook? Does this you know, new thing have you know, maybe some slightly better features or maybe it's just targeted at like a younger demographic or something, right? Yeah, It doesn't really have to be intrinsically superior to Facebook to like beat Facebook, right? But the way that the FDA actually sets up these trials is the new drug has to actually beat the old drug, right? It's not just that you <laughs> can just put out a drug of similar efficacy. You need to actually do better than what's already out there. And I'm kind of like, well, but maybe just put that out and allow us to explore the sort of new space, right? And we might end up finding that there's these weird quirks. I mean, so many drugs were originally approved for something totally different and then got repurposed, right? Right. And so if you're then like, well, for this one indication that you're going for, you know, say some heart drug, well, it's just as good as this existing heart drug. So I think we're not going to say yes. It's like, okay, but you don't know what other purpose that drug might be put to 20 years from now. Right. We are repurposing so many things that I think it's actually way better to just throw all this stuff out there.
0: Absolutely. Well, and you can use it, you know, a lot of physicians use it off label. They could be, and you discover all these new things if it's actually in the ether and people can use it, um, which makes a lot of sense.
1: And I think the other thing I would point to in in terms of how things are getting better is there is an increasing push to allow basically patients with no other option to use experimental therapies. Um so Congress did pass a right to try bill a few years back. And um it does still require there to be a completed phase one study. So it's not literally like anyone can go to, you know, a scientist and be like, pump me up, doc, (laughs) let's go, you know, but the phase one, at least, I mean, again, that is already a very high bar. We're talking eight figures. Right. But at least that gives this opening for folks to try stuff that at least has some, you know, a bit of kind of human record on it. Right. Right. And that's a very far cry from having to wait until something's completed a phase three trial and is being marketed and sold, all that. We're talking a, a speed up of, you know, many, many years for some of the sort of worst off patients. So I would also definitely highlight that as being, you know, really, really good step. I don't think it's, you know, as far as it could go, but it's a very good step. Makes sense. Makes sense.
0: And, you know, if you had to pick between the two, you know, would you rather there just be a lot more money in the biotech space, you know, capital flowing in or is just spending money on lobbying to try and get the FDA to, you know, drop efficacy requirements and just, just make the process more simple?
1: Um, I don't know if there's any amount of lobbying that would do that. Um, oh, yeah. To a So, well, look, I think that the way that you need to look at federal regulators is, um They get heavily punished when things don't go well, and they get no upside when things go right. Right. And this is as true of the FDA as it is of the like nuclear commission, right? Which hasn't approved anything or one or two projects in like 40 years, right? So um, basically every, every layer of sort of government oversight that you add is just another entire system of people, all of whom are only trying to stop, you know, one of two kinds of errors, right? Right. And you can just do that over and over and over and you can create arbitrarily many of these groups, all of which can veto these projects. And so that's kind of the world that we find ourselves in. That said, a lot of the reason that the FDA has sort of gotten better on the compassionate use thing, and a lot of the reason that they're quicker to approve orphan drugs now isn't because of lobbying in the traditional sense it's because of patient advocacy groups and a lot of the really smart pharma companies are working very closely with these groups because these are actual patients and and the families of patients that are basically like appealing to the FDA in a public and very emotional manner right right and i think generally when folks think of lobbying it's like oh, i'm going to pay off some congressman to you know vote for this bill <laughs> twirling my mustache But that's not what these groups are, right? Right. They're, for the most part, as far as I know, they're not paying anyone, right? But they're showing up at these meetings every single day. And they're like, hey, you have done nothing for my family member. You have approved zero drugs that treat, you know, my son, my daughter, right? And you can only sort of look those people in the eye so many times before you're like, yeah, maybe I should approve this one. Now, mind you, we do get things like that Alzheimer's drug. We're yep. very skeptical, you know, that it worked at all. But that is the price. That's the price we pay. We have to let through a couple of drugs that don't work in order to let through drugs at
0: all. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was talking to a biotech on M&A podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about how um, the failure of that drug for Alzheimer's uh, just has ruined like a whole class of drugs that were targeting the space because no one will invest in them anymore because, you know, <laughs> That one drug didn't work and it was this big Atlantic story and everything.
1: Yeah. The Alzheimer's space in particular is tough. Um, I definitely think just like every other field, everything is about trends and fashion. Right? Unfortunately. <laughs> it's like, oh, there's some target and everyone wants to go after that one target. And that can make sense when it's a really good target. Right. Right. But when it's uh, a very uncertain target right. and every drug company goes for it yeah that can destroy entire fields there there are very few companies that are excited to invest in a new alzheimer's drug right, right? which is uh incredibly incredibly sad and yet that's how the world works when things just fail over and over and over again we're just conditioned to to then not try definitely
0: definitely do, do you see any of this changing, changing on the, the, the capital side? Uh, you know, I was talking to Paul Schmelzing at Yale a couple of weeks ago. We are talking about the long-term trend of interest rates for the past 800 years. Ah, uh, yes. You know, they've been trending, trending down, you know, down to like... I you know saw that paper, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so we were talking, you know, about why this was. But, you know, long story short, it does seem like interest rates are trending down, hitting zero right about now. And um, this seems like this will probably continue to be the case. And so that that pushes people up to riskier assets. You know, venture capital is one of them. Do you think eventually like just more capital in the space will just help fix and alleviate some of these problems in the long run?
1: So I'm going to say no, at least from the evidence that we have, when more money goes into venture, it tends to underperform.
0: (laughs) It just just reduces the returns. It doesn't.
1: Yeah. Which suggests that the the fundamental bottleneck isn't actually funding. Gotcha. And I suspect that that money could be better spent elsewhere. Uh, I think the way to think about VC is that it's a high prestige field, which means it's always going to be oversupplied relative to the actual size of the market. Gotcha. And if you look at overall VC returns, it generally is somewhat underperforming just owning the S&P 500. (laughs) There are brief periods where it overperforms, right? There are some, you know... 90s tech companies that have ended up becoming the largest companies in the world. So yeah, you have a couple cohorts that outperform by a lot, but the vast majority of cohorts underperform. Interesting. Interesting. And if you pour more money into that space, it's basically going to push up valuations and it's not really going to do a whole lot,
0: I think, to increase returns in the space. Got it. Got it. How do you, you know, working in venture capital, then, you know, how do you think about finding alpha? You know, like if, if, uh, you know, there's a lot of capital. Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. Is it just like, just just, just, like, (laughs) like, like, man, it's just very difficult. We just do the best we can kind of thing. Or like, what's your answer there?
1: I think every investor comes up with a set of heuristics that they think allows them to outperform. Yeah. And I think some of what makes VC extremely hard is that the feedback loops are very loose. All right. So if you invest in a company in the public market, you have a daily P&L right. and you have to stare at that number. If it's red, if it's green, you know, every single day, which I think is also another failure mode, by the way. <laughs> um, it's very hard to invest well when you can see the price every single day. Uh, the flip side though, is what kind of feedback do you get as a VC? Right. Well, the company is going to raise another round maybe in a year, maybe in two years, maybe longer. They're going to do that a few times before they go public. It's a very long road before you either A, get your money back, or B, get something like a kind of daily thermometer about how things are actually going. (laughs) So in that sense, I do basically think most VC investors are using the price of the following round as their... Cut to success. Yeah, which does create some obviously bad and weird incentives. And that's sort of only a proxy metric for the thing that you actually are trying to do. Right. So in that sense, it's very hard. And did you generate alpha? I'll tell you in 10 years, whether your strategy generated any alpha, maybe 15. <laughs> um, At that point it's just too late. It's just too late. I mean, it's not too late. If you're going to spend your entire life doing VC, right? So, you know, maybe you have a 50 year long career, if you're, you know, very lucky, and you hang on way longer than you actually should, maybe 10 to 15 years into a, I mean, fine, let's call it a 40 year uh, career, right? Maybe after 10 to 15 years out of your total 40 year career, you'll know if you're actually making money. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny, that's funny. I do think that it's not impossible either, right? Like I invested for Peter Thiel. He's one of the great investors in the space. If there's anyone who has proven that they can actually generate alpha, it's him. So can I generate alpha by just copying what he's doing? Maybe. (laughs) I don't think that's like totally crazy. Um, And I do think that I obviously learned a a ton from him uh i also don't think i'm as good of an investor as he is <laughs> so <laughs> but if i can get you know
0: half of that alpha i'll still be happy actually make money right <laughs> right 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 interesting interesting is is it just you know just at the the meta level is it just looking for things that other people just Overlook for some reason, you know, like taboos or things like that, or just, you know, you know, is, are are there any like frameworks you can talk about that uh, help you conceptualize, you know, picking good investments?
1: So to be fair, I think biotech is a little different than tech. And I don't spend most of my days doing uh, tech stuff. So it's possible that this is maybe a little bit of an unfair characterization, but I sort of feel like you could just take a company's weekly growth rate in tech and just like solely price it based off of that one metric and just get rid of all other VCs, right? <laughs> um, and look, I don't think that's actually fair, but I think that that's closer to the mark than uh, I wish were true, maybe. um yeah, I think I think the one big conceit that all VCs have is that the ideas matter. Interesting. And so often, I hate to say it, but but the ideas don't actually matter. It's more about the team, it's about the execution. And it's a little bit sort of trite to say that now, but I think even most VCs still haven't internalized how much that's actually true. Really. It's it's just can this team pull it off? Now, again, I think that's slightly more complicated in biotech but only by a little. And the reason I say that is most companies in biotech, if they're developing a drug are bought before the phase three, Got it. not every time, but most of the time. So yeah, there are some proof points in a phase one. They're pretty meek by the phase two. You probably really should have some sort of, you know, indication that the drug will work, but even then not always. Right. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think that that has helped to kind of weaken the amount that the sort of ideas and the underlying tech matters. Because if it's bought before you've had to prove it out, then the idea didn't matter, did it? <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> so is it more just, you know, like, I guess, uh, operational, like managerial excellence and good salesmanship that matters a lot more. Like, can you just sales and sales
1: matters a lot? Sales skill. Seriously.
0: I, 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 I honest to God think
1: sales is the most important skill a CEO can have. It is the most important skill. And yeah, again, you get a Theranos type situation too, which I will note, by the way, there were no like hardcore biotech investors in that company, right? right? It was all folks from outside the space who invested in this company. So clearly there's something that we could pick up on that something wasn't quite right here, right? You know. But thats said, there have been plenty of drug companies which, again, were bought after a, you know possibly successful phase two, if you sort of squint your eyes and like turn your head and look at it in just the right way. Maybe that was a positive phase two, and that company still got bought. And that comes down to sales. It comes down to sales. it comes down to who you know, networking. And if that's the primary thing that generates early stage returns, that's the primary investment criteria. Yeah. Can the CEO do sales? And I'll tell you right now, that's not different between tech and biotech. It's really not.
0: Well, you, you know, you bring up a great point. I've always thought that uh Elon's Elon's real skill was that he's just an incredible salesperson. Like, you know, like I, I think like, you know, he may be a competent engineer. I have no idea, but he probably is a very smart person. But I thought his real skill is just his ability to sell. I think he's a really great salesperson. A hundred percent. And quite a few people have
1: pointed that out in the past. (laughs) But uh, it does seem, though, like, yes, he's good at sales, and he seems to have actually created working products, too. That's right. It's important. And those two things are somewhat orthogonal. Arguably, they're even diametrically opposed in some cases. (laughs) <laughs> However, he's actually proven himself in a way that a lot of people who are good at sales never have to actually prove themselves. It's true. So I think he has earned more respect than he's normally given at this point. I think you're right. I do think those were totally fair criticisms, even five years ago, but certainly ten years ago. Right? <laughs> you, uh, <laughs> I think I think that there are other universes where Elon, you know. Did blow up the first three rockets or four rockets or five rockets, and he's nobody now. It's been, quite, it's been quite clear. Yeah. And that's not the world that we live in. And I'm very glad that it's not. But I do think that there were many cases where he was
0: a sort of hair's breadth from failure <laughs> and he pulled through. Well, you know, that brings a, a great question, you know, up that I've been thinking about. Sorry, it's not on the outline, but, you know, how much do you think uh, chance and luck play in, in these things?
1: They obviously play some role, and it's one of those things where for the people who don't have the non-luck factors, they like to play up the luck, and for the people who have the non-luck factors, they like to play down the luck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's an excellent point.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So clearly there is some luck, and also very clearly there are a lot of things you can do to stack the deck in your favor. I like to think of it as how much can you load your dice? it's still going to be a roll of the dice. Okay, fine. Right. But maybe your dice have uh, three sides that have a six on it. And, you know, maybe the others are a four, a three and a two. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that gets you a much higher average roll. But yeah. Is there luck? Yes. But have you changed the expected value? Yes. By a lot.
0: So, so it's something where you, you probably want to act like, you know, it's, it's all under your control. Um, but at the end of the day, at the macro level, the luck is involved. You just want to maximize your expected return as best you can.
1: Oh, yeah. And I think most entrepreneurs are basically like psychotically deluded about how little <laughs> luck matters. And I think <laughs> they have to be. Right. And this is also one reason why I'm not super excited to start my own company. Like I will do it if no one else is doing it and it's a really good idea and I have a pretty high level of certainty. I could be convinced to start company. But for me, that's this huge hurdle. Whereas for other people, they are just like compelled, they can't not start companies. And those people often are not necessarily the best thinkers in terms of like figuring out what's true and what's not true. But they're much better doers than the people who are trying to figure out what's true and not true. (laughs) And uh, I'm very glad that those people exist. I think they put themselves through enormous hell. I basically think being an entrepreneur is absolutely hellish. And only crazy people do it. And that's fine because those crazy people do exist. And if they didn't, the world would be much worse. <laughs> but I'm also not so uh self-deluded to think that I could be one of those people and stick it through even when things obviously weren't going well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know well I, I want to tell you this this quick anecdote you know uh, came out of college helped create this company uh, with you know three other friends um, we sold it five years later uh, and right you know week before the pandemic. And, uh, we were doing a retrospective, uh, I, this was a couple months ago with, uh, one of my friends and and we realized there was probably 12 separate occasions where we thought it was greater than 75% chance that we were going to fail week to week. You know, like, <laughs> and we're like, wow, like Jesus, like the odds on that are like not good. Like we were so <laughs> stupid. Like we should have just like stopped like each of these occasions. Like, you know, it was like clearly, you know, I don't know, like you just kind of somehow figure out some way, um if you're just kind of somewhat diluted, um, I, I suppose it's probably the best way to, to look at it. Um, <laughs> and then how successful were you? You know, uh, we did okay. You know, we did okay. It wasn't a huge success. Um, you know, it wasn't a failure, but it was like, just very median kind of outcome, a little bit above median, I would say not life changing, but you yeah. know, a really good experience and a great lesson, I would say. Um, oh, totally. which was very interesting. Very interesting. Um, which brings up a, a question I wanted to ask, which is, um, you know, how do you think people can kind of get better at thinking? Uh, You know, it's clear like people can get better, like, you know, they get more fit, we can kind of self improve in all these different areas. But do you think people can kind of like self improve in the area of thinking about things and being rational? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, of course. (laughs) It's like any other skill, you can obviously train it.
1: That's awesome. Now, my caveat, however, is that returns to thinking are probably widely different across people and what they're trying to do. So if you meet a high-level poker player, they're incredibly rational in terms of doing things like calculating expected value, right? They have gotten very good at that and they've trained themselves to do that. Because if you don't do that, you systematically get money drained out of your pockets. Right, (laughs) it's kind of important. (laughs) So in that sense, they face this, very steep curve where you either get really good at a certain kind of thinking or you lose all of your money. And in any environment like that, there are so many like strong incentives to learn that you're going to improve your thinking or you're not going to stay in that field. And I would argue this is true of like finance too. If you're yeah. this like crazy over emotional swing trader, and you're like, oh, it's going up, I'm going to buy, oh, it's going down, I'm selling, ah. And very, very quickly, you'll soon learn that you lose all of your money. And almost everyone who actively trades has some period where they all admit they were just totally stupid. (laughs) (laughs) But you can learn to manage your emotions. You can learn to be systematic, right? You can learn to have heuristics that work, you know, 52% of of the time, right? And uh, that that sort of thing, you can obviously, obviously improve on and make gains. But what fraction of people are in that kind of situation where you have to improve your thinking skills in order to 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 do better at life? Not many. It seems like not many. I would argue that it's actually not that many. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to improve your thinking skills? I think the answer is sort of like entrepreneurs. Are you compelled to do so? Is there no world in which you wouldn't improve your thinking skills? In which case, go ahead and do it and you can absolutely do it. <laughs> if you're a normal, sane human being, <laughs> how much is that really gonna help your life? You know, maybe some here and there, right? But I think not it isn't it isn't gonna be profoundly life
0: changing either. Gotcha. So There's just like not that much incentive for most people to to get better, really. Yeah. That's probably what's going on. So, and what does getting better look like? Is it just like recognizing like biases, cognitive biases, that kind of thing? Or uh, yeah. What do you think that looks like? Yeah. I mean, the actual answer is probably that it's a lot of different
1: subskills. Uh, I do think gotcha. that learning to recognize cognitive biases is actually very, very helpful. I have personally spent a lot of time investing in doing that. And I feel like it has been very helpful for me. Uh but I think that there are other kind of broader subskills too, like just learning to do really well at introspecting on what's going on inside your own head. That does help with things like noticing a cognitive bias, but, but I'd almost say just things like having good relationships with people can really, really benefit from that. And that's not exactly what most people mean by improving your thinking. But it is effectively a cognitive subskill that will affect every other area of your life. You know, if you can figure out what's going on in your head and you can figure out what's going on in someone else's head and you can talk to them about what's going on. Sometimes you can actually fix problems that otherwise would sort of go unnoticed and just sort of sit there and fester. So is that improving your thinking? Well, that's not what people usually mean by that, but I'd argue that it's
0: almost more important in some way. Definitely. Definitely. It's super interesting. Super interesting. But you know, uh, Tyler Cowen has this, this, uh, phrase that you should, knowledge workers should have something like scales they practice every day. <laughs> uh, do you think, uh, people who try to get better at their thinking should have some kind of like a uh, skills they practice on a daily basis to kind of try and get better at it?
1: Yeah. I mean, within the rationality community, I'd say betting on the prediction markets is a sort of Good way, way of, you know, staying at least somewhat calibrated. Um, you know, most most people aren't weighing in on so many markets so often, but at least it's a sort of baseline check. And I do like that there's a little bit of a uh, a culture of challenging each other to bets. It's like, okay, well, you think something strongly, I think something strongly. They're not anywhere close to each other. Let's turn it into an actionable bet. Let's turn it into some observable thing about the world. And I think just having that as a cultural norm, keeps people a little bit saner, actually. And it does keep them a little bit more in touch with like, okay, am I modeling the world well? Is this subjective probability that I have in my head reflective of actual probability of something happening? Some folks explicitly do calibration exercises. And I think that's useful to do every now and then, largely, again, to just translate the subjective feeling of a probability in your head into an actual probability that corresponds to something that you can check. Very good to do that sometimes, or even just once. <laughs> um, but is that necessarily going to keep you sharp? I think it's, it's tough to do it with sort of stylized things like that. Got it,
0: got it. So, um, you know, you, so, you know, you started work, you know, you worked at the Federal Reserve, econ major, you became a biotech investor, investing in longevity. Um, you know, were there any things you, anything you like explicitly practiced along the way, you know, getting up to skill in biology, in longevity? Uh, was it just like reading a ton of papers and getting the lay of the land? Like, like, how did you think yes. about that? <laughs> just like that was a it. It's like the academic papers. Like, that's the best way to do it. Yeah.
1: So, so I would say that there's a skill in how biology works generally. There's a lot of specific facts about biology. And then there's the skill of becoming a good investor. And I think all three of those I learned separately. Interesting. So... I would say that my journey basically started towards the end of college, and I was really reflecting on what I wanted to do with my life. And basically, the answer that I got back, if I could, would basically to be stopping sickness and death and suffering. I just like I was looking around me and seeing my parents and my step parents like falling apart at the seams and other people who had just like mysterious health conditions, just tons of people. It's just like, can't lose weight. Right. It's 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 everywhere. If you look around, like ill health is everywhere. And it was just like eating at me. I was like, I want to do something to try to help this. And so what I ended up doing is I started with myself. I was like, all right, I'm just gonna try to answer some like really basic questions. What should I do for diet and exercise? And so I started to read the literature. And I was like, okay, this is a total mess. (laughs) (laughs) We have no idea. The studies are done super poorly. And I do think having a background in econ really helped here. Because A, I was actually like literate enough in stats to sometimes just see these things and be like, that doesn't really mean what you think it means. <laughs> that 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 isn't good evidence for this right. claim you're making. <laughs> this doesn't make sense. And then everyone's citing this bad paper. And I'm like, well, I can't trust those papers. It just got, oh, boy, it's you so know, yeah. total, total mess. But I think the other thing too, is there's a way of thinking about complex systems, which I picked up in econ, not from my classes, but from actually learning fundamental economics from, you know, folks like Hayek and Smith. Right. There is this way of 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 seeing the world as a complex system. And I immediately could see the same things going on in the body. And once I could sort of like port over some of that just general way of thinking, that like actual systems level thinking, the whole body started making a lot more sense. Uh, that's cool. And so in a weird way, my background outside of bio, I think actually prepared me really well to teach myself more bio. So that kicked off the phase of me just like reading everything and just following every rabbit hole I got down, you know, I was like, okay, so I'm interested in uh, nutrition. So like how are different foods digested? And like, oh, it just turns into like, you know, fats, proteins, carbs, and they're like in the bloodstream and then they get metabolized. How do they do that? Oh, it's going into the mitochondria. I'm like, oh, the mitochondria, so how does that thing work? I'm like, oh, this thing's really linked to cancer. Now I have to read every paper on cancer. (laughs) And I just did that and I read thousands of journal papers. And it's tough because a lot of people ask me like, oh, I would like to get started in bio. Can you suggest something for me to start with? I'm like, no, no, I can't actually. (laughs) My knowledge is compiled from just reading so much hours daily for years, I didn't have a single source. I didn't have like one textbook where I'm like, oh, yeah, you should like definitely check that out because that totally makes sense. I have no idea where someone should start. I just sort of jumped into it with both feet and I'm here now and I feel bad because I want to give people good advice, but I actually don't have it. Like I just put (laughs) in the thousands of hours necessary to become an expert in this space. And, And it's very hard to shortcut that part. Right. Right. I do think I was able to shortcut the like way of thinking. And I was able to shortcut knowing whether a study looks good or not. I was not able to shortcut learning the facts of biology. There are so many proteins, so many different molecules floating around, so many drugs, so many systems, and all of that just takes time to learn. Then there's the becoming an actual investor piece, which I did much later. Right. So I got interested in bio years before I ever even considered investing in the space. I'm honestly just incredibly grateful for Peter and that he gave me the like opportunity to do this. I wasn't an investor before I worked for him, but he knew that I had this knowledge base and he knew that that I could focus on it as a specialist. And you know, I teamed up with some other folks internally and we just sort of did it. And, you know, Uh, it really was a case of, you know, asking for uh, forgiveness instead of asking for uh, permission. And, uh, I look back on those first few companies that I suggested and they are so bad and how I was thinking of them was so terrible. I am shocked that he didn't like laugh me out of the room or scream me out of the room because it was so bad. Right. And that was true of many of the first companies but eventually we started to actually hit on something and then we started to see some of these outcomes you know did they get up rounds how high like how soon right we started to see okay were they able to execute or not and not just on companies that we did invest in something that i think everyone should do is they should keep a shadow portfolio look at all the things you seriously considered but didn't invest in and look at how all of those did and why and some of those shadow portfolio companies did it incredibly well, <laughs> which is always very, very painful. That's brutal. Um, but in terms of training yourself to think, especially when there isn't that tight feedback loop, you need as much as you can in early stage companies. Yeah, get a bigger data set. Don't just follow the companies you invested in, follow the companies you almost invested in, because that's the closest thing you have to a control group. It's not perfect because obviously you were choosing which ones to invest in and not invest in. But if it's close, it was close for a reason. It was close because it almost hit all the heuristics, but not quite. And that can help you see, okay, which things actually turned out to be pretty important and which things really didn't. <laughs> Very cool.
0: One common thing I see just in you learning biology and, and about longevity is you know, you were just like really intellectually curious about it to the point where you, yes. you this is something you're gonna do like kind of no matter what, right? Like, you know, you're just gonna go out there. Read the papers. Absolutely, have fun doing it. It's not like you were like sitting there and like forcing yourself every day. I'm assuming to. like- I want to learn biology. No, <laughs> yeah. it never. It never felt like that ever. Which, which probably seems like a really important part of being successful in it. At least it's like it's just if you're like trying to force that to happen, it probably wouldn't work as well or something like that.
1: Yeah, I do agree. Uh, I basically think for developing something like that in your kind of like spare time, I basically think you you have to be deeply intrinsically motivated. If you're doing it as your job, if for some reason, you know, right now you're plunked into a lab and you had no choice, you're like, you have to become a scientist. I'm pretty sure you would find a way to do it, you know, in the 40 hours per week you would spend on it. And then you would yeah. do something else, right? So I do think that it is possible to de- develop expertise deliberately, um, but I don't think that that's going to get you the passion to do it in your spare time, right? You have to actually be motivated to do it. Which also sort of like ties into how we think about how to parent. Like we are, we are actually unschooling our kids. We just wait to see what they show some intrinsic interest in. And then we like pour fuel on that fire, right? And it can be almost anything. It can be totally random stuff. But some of our, our thinking there is like, well, they're not really going to want to go deep on it. They're not going to stick with it. They're not going to really develop excellence in it if we're forcing them to do it. We have to wait for them to show the interest and then help fulfill that interest as much as we humanly possibly can. And I basically think you can do that to yourself, right? You can look at the thing that you actually want to be doing. And I think it's tough because a lot of people tell you to turn your hobby into your job. And I think that's hard on multiple angles. I mean, one is not all hobbies can be turned into jobs. <laughs> right? And I think that advice is sort of causing a lot of people to just become more unhappy with like their actual job. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, I am very hesitant to give people advice that I don't think can be sort of universally applied or sort of always successful if you follow it. So I'm not going to tell you to turn your hobby into a job. But if you want to be intrinsically motivated to get very good at something, with those, you know, hours that you have left in the day, it's basically a necessary condition. Makes sense, right? So you might not always be able to turn your hobby into your job, but if you want your hobby to become your job,
0: you have to be pretty interested and pretty motivated to do it. That makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I think I think that's very good advice. And that uh, you know, you're not like uh, sending people down any rabbit holes, but it's like this is like a good path if there's something well aligned with what you're interested in, and you know, you spend a lot of time working on it. Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say a thing I personally struggle with is how to know when to go into a highly competitive prestige driven field, right? Like how should someone tell whether they should try to become a movie star? Right. And I don't have a good answer for that question because ultimately you kind of have to try it and see if you get some traction and sticking with it in an almost like psychopathic way is probably necessary other than a few, you know, incredibly lucky random Breaks, but like really sticking with it and just trying and like doing those like small gigs and stuff. But yeah, it's tough because I would personally tell basically every friend I have, don't try to do that. That seems crazy, <laughs> right? And yet the movie stars come from somewhere. Yes. <laughs> um, so maybe it is like being an entrepreneur, right? Don't go into these fields which are you know extremely hard to ever make any progress in unless you are just intrinsically motivated to bash your head up against the wall forever. And possibly just ruin your life because you focused on something totally fruitless. Right? <laughs> like, that feels like terrible advice to give to someone. And yet you need <laughs> people who sort of come out the other end of this, right? Like a shockingly huge fraction of kids want to be a YouTube content creator. Right. How many of those are there in the world? And then how many, many kids want to be them and then run that math? So like, well, what advice should I give my kid now? Okay, so you want to be a YouTube content creator. What should I even tell you? <laughs> like
0: right? We, we don't, well, this this reminds me. I have a good friend. Um, he talks about this a lot. and And he says, you know, one of the things that people miss, is, you know, kids will come to him. He's a school teacher yeah. and, you know, ask him what they want to be. And they're like, well, I want to be an NBA star. And it's like, well, like, <laughs> yeah, but like, why do you want to be an NBA star? He's like, well, like, actually, like, I like money. I want a lot of money. Like, I can care less about basketball, but I know NBA players have money. <laughs> so I wonder if, like, in these surveys, you know, it's like. Yes, you can goal factor. Yeah, it's yes, like really can, just so like. Prove your thinking and then goal factor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe the goal, like, because maybe it's just like people are glomming on to like. Some other aspect, and and that's just a popular choice, and, but who knows?
1: I think it's tough if the thing that they're glomming onto is the fame, right? Fame because fame is really pretty zero sum. <laughs> Fame's bad. Money is not zero sum. Fame is pretty zero sum. <laughs> fame is pretty bad. You want to I would say any any field that involves drawing people's attention away from something else they're doing to your thing is going to be intrinsically very difficult, including podcasts, by the way. It's true. It's
0: true. <laughs> I, I, would, I, would, I would, if you want to make money or be seen or anything like this, I would not recommend podcasting. It, it's not a good, good way. You know, the only reason I started the podcast is to be able to talk to people like you will, which I would have no access to otherwise, essentially. It's really an excuse for me to learn from people. And for that, it's great. But if you want to go out and like try and make money or things like that, I think it's a very poor choice. Many other ways to spend your time that are better. So it's funny. I
1: I first started thinking about doing a podcast. Um, Man, I had an old Facebook post about this. I want to say it was eight or nine years ago. And I just asked people, hey, would folks be interested in a podcast that was just two people having a really interesting conversation? And uh, it turns out this is one of like the biggest markets for podcasts ever. (laughs) Joe Rogan is just two people sitting down having a good conversation. Very bizarre. the amount of pushback I got was actually pretty surprising. There were several people who, who were like, yeah, that actually does sound kind of cool. I would like that. But the number of folks who came back being like, no, you, you need this like, you know, tight content thing or super boring, and it has to be super edited and tight <laughs> and scripted. And I was kind of like, are you sure? But I didn't have enough conviction, right? Because at the time, I thought the podcast space was too crowded. Interesting. Well, how crowded is it today? Right. Exactly. Like if I'd actually started back then, I think there's a decent chance that just having interesting conversations would have caught on, and I could have been some sort of podcaster. And that still to this day, I'm like, maybe I should start a podcast. It's like, well,
0: but it's an even worse time now. <laughs> Very interesting space. Um, I, I gotta say, yeah, but, if, but I do highly recommend it. You know, if you want to have interesting conversation and learn from people, it's a great it's a great method to do that from. Um, but it's not a great way to like try and go out and make a lot of money or something like that. Many, many ways. Um, Yeah.
1: I mean, I did honestly try to think like, okay, if I did start a podcast, I wouldn't expect to become rich or famous necessarily. So, like, what actually was my sort of success criterion for that? And I was basically like, yeah, if the right 10,000 people listened to it and liked it, I'd be very happy with that. And I think the trick there, though, is to get to the right 10,000 people, you actually have to get to like a million plus people <laughs> and then randomly hit those, you know, 10,000 that you actually want to have listened
0: to the podcast. <laughs> you know what? I, I would almost push back on that a little bit because I yeah. have had a, actually a lot of success. Like I, I love my audience is like the exact type of people that I would like to connect with for some reason. I don't know why. I guess it's just true. I, but I think it's because I only follow like, I only contact people I'm reading where I find interesting. Like, it is right. exactly that. Like, I have, I do not look at, like, who's popular or anything like that. I think if you tried to do that, it wouldn't really work. Yeah. But if you do just follow your obscure interests, like, I think you can make it, you can attract that kind of audience. Um, well, I have a couple thoughts on that. I mean, one yeah. is, if you're thinking
1: of a niche to dominate, I think you can totally make a podcast that is very popular within a certain sort of subgroup in our culture. Yeah. And I basically think that you have succeeded at that. Thanks, man. And there's a question of, okay, then can a podcast kind of like break out of a particular niche? Yeah, that's a good question. And one answer is you don't actually need to, right? Like you you have hit your goals with this podcast. So it doesn't actually have to be more popular because the people that you care about are hearing it. And you did that because you're targeting a particular kind of person. But I do think that... In terms of doing like the stag hunting thing and like trying to get famous people on the podcast, I do think even for a podcast that's targeting a niche, it is still actually pretty useful just from a marketing perspective. Saying, hey, look at the awesome people that I've had on this podcast. Because those folks have fans who will listen to all of their stuff no matter what and they'll discover your podcast, one. Two, it's easier to get the intros. If you're like, hey, I've had X, Y, and Z on my podcast, would you also like to be on it? Because it gives you this level of social proof. And so I do think we shouldn't be seeking out famous people to be on our podcasts, but having famous people on a podcast does not hurt. It actually does help.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it it, it definitely does. And and that's, you know, you mentioned social proof and that's one of the very weird benefits that it does give you is, uh, you know, like there's there's some weird linkage people get when you, you say, you know, I reach out to people, I say, hey, I've talked to these people and they're like, wow, like I like them. And, um, you know, people are much more likely to say yes that way. I don't know. Humans are very, like, (laughs) status-driven or something like that. I I don't know. Kind of disturbing at some level.
1: Um, Yes and no. I think some of it is status-driven, though I think a lot of it is um, we live in this very busy, complicated, crowded world. Absolutely. And you need some method of sorting, right? You need some method of rapidly separating signal from noise. And anything that is a hard to fake signal is really useful for that. And being able to point to a podcast, be like, hey, I interviewed Important Person X for two hours. That's really helpful because it it is it is a very hard to fake signal that important person X thought you were important enough to give two hours to. That's a really great point. And I think that among nerdier type people, we really hate costly signaling because it feels <laughs> like you should be able to just like tell people the truth and then we don't have to pay <laughs> this horrible cost and the signaling feels really dirty. And yeah, it's often this like status-based thing, like, ugh, gross, right? Yeah. But if you think about it from a search and a like information theory perspective, on some level, you have to get signal from noise. You have to. And the costliness of the signal is part of what makes it a valuable signal. And those are inseparable. they are absolutely inseparable. And I think it's better if folks like us really learn that lesson and internalize it up front, because then we can get comfortable with the fact that, yeah, sometimes you have to pay these weird social costs, but you get incredible benefits because you are conveying credible information to other people in the world. That's one of the most important things you can do.
0: You know, man, well, I, I really appreciate that because, okay, I, I, want to, I want to tell this anecdote really quick. My friend Lars and I, we won an ACX grant. Um, this last uh, December yeah. uh, for some of our work on land value taxes. And it just opened up like a whole new cadre of guests. And it was kind of like a black pill because I was like, man, I haven't done anything like different you know, now until like, like I just get this one signal. It's like, man, if I had a Harvard degree, is this the same thing? You know, like, man, that's it's kind of <laughs> annoying that the world works this way. But I, I think the way you painted that is, it's like, it's a really good way to look at it. Right. It's like it, it, it just people have very little time to evaluate and it's just like, You have to take shortcuts where you can. And it's an easy way to to do that.
1: Yeah. And frankly, we are all born into this world as helpless newborn infants who cannot do literally anything. (laughs) Everyone's entire life is bootstrapping. Even from the very first, like, get the visual system online, learn how to move my arms. Like, even if you're born rich, you still have to bootstrap basic human functionality. So, (laughs) and I think that we actually just have to be okay with that. And we have to be more patient with ourselves and others and accept that to a certain degree, you know, we have like, we all have something to prove. Everyone, right. no matter what has something to prove. And that's hard. And that sucks sometimes, but that's part of life.
0: Yep. Yep. That's the way it is. It, it's uh, that, that's, that's really well put. Well, you know, this is a great transition uh, to, to parenting. Um, sure. You know, you've got a lot of really interesting thoughts on the subject. Uh, Some of the things you mentioned earlier in the podcast reminded me of, uh, uh, we talked to Tommy Collison, he's one of the Collison brothers, um, a while back. And and we were talking about his childhood, and it was very much like, you know, his parents just encouraged him to kind of go after like whatever he found interested and really enabled him to do that, which I I really found like awesome because I see around me everyone trying to get their kids into the competitive preschools and, you know, so they get into the right college. It's just like really like insanity, just like seems like a really bad idea to do that. So, so how have you approached parenting and how much do you think parenting matters at the end of the day if you're not kind of actively screwing up kids? Oh man, that is a huge and extremely contentious <laughs> subject of which
1: many books have been written. <laughs> yes. No small questions
0: here.
1: I mean, uh, look, maybe I'm as delusional as the entrepreneur who assumes that he'll succeed no matter what, but I basically believe that my parenting matters. (laughs) There are studies that will try to show you that's not true. Um, I think that those studies try to prove a little bit too much. Uh, but, uh, I think it's probably one of those things where the people who thinks it's like all genetics plus randomness is, you know, understating the effect of parenting and most parents are overstating it. (laughs) And uh, I do have a couple of essays on my blog on this subject where I've tried to actually get into studies, which try to get at this question. Uh, Most of these are using heritability estimates. So you take, you know, identical versus non-identical twins raised separately versus raised in the same household, and then you can sort of decompose that variance into genetics, shared environment, and non-shared environment. And I've never really loved this approach because you're not directly measuring anything. It's basically a, like statistical trick. Gotcha. And it is a statistical trick that, to be fair, does have some value. And I think that it's particularly helpful for trying to back out how much of stuff is actually genetic. Because I do think almost everyone is underplaying how important your genetics and your partners are in the outcome of your kids. And I know no one wants to think anything is like predestined, and it's really not. But again, you're sort of loading those dice. <laughs> right. And I really do think folks should, you know, at least give non zero amount of thought to like the genetics of the person that they want to settle down with. That's, you know, not directly how we choose our partners, but I think subtly, right? I think we are sort of are about selecting on that. But I do think, yeah, for folks who, who, Like, especially folks who want kids and want a lot of kids, it's at least a factor we should be thinking about a little more. And you see it coming up with like preventing genetic diseases, which makes a lot of sense, right? Like, if you're both carriers for something, you know, that's a huge issue for the child. But I do think, just yeah, in general, it matters. And I think the heritability studies are good at pointing out that it does matter. Those studies also do show which things matter more than others. If you're talking about your height, it's mostly genetic, quite right. frankly. Um and if it's health stuff, yeah, it's actually partly genetic, you know? Um certainly the, you know, propensity towards certain types of health problems are. Once you start getting into the social variables, you actually do start to see the g- genetic component go down and you see the shared environment go from, you know, zero to something more significant. Um Fundamentally, I don't like how the shared environment and the non-shared environment are separated in these studies. Seems like tough to demarcate. Yeah, I have I have two complaints. One, one is about the shared environment and one is about the non-shared. And my complaint about the non-shared environment is basically that uh, I know that all parents like to pretend that they treat their children the same, but they really don't. <laughs> and just because two kids were born into the same household, I think doesn't mean that they got parented. The same at all there are then like arguments like okay but then there still should be something that shows up in the shared environment okay sure fine but like if you actually just look at an object level how how parents interact with their kids it's very very different so it's it isn't a priori obvious to me that the shared environment component should actually be catching the effect of parenting but then the other problem with the shared environment is it basically makes no sense for the shared environment to appear to be virtually zero because the shared environment isn't just your parents, right? It's the house that you grew up in. Does the house that you grew up in have lead paint? The big one. Like, Okay, why doesn't that show up then as a shared environment effect on IQ? If lead has any effect on IQ and lead differs area to area, why doesn't that show up? Why shouldn't the kids raised together have lower IQ then, right? Yeah. So the very fact that the shared environment isn't showing up, known environmental things like toxins, right? <laughs> you start to then wonder, okay, well then, well then why? What is this thing actually measuring? It sure seems like it's just some weird statistical artifact and not really the actual sort of thing that we care about if it's not catching known environmental factors that are shared between the people that you're studying. And then I think the final uh, criticism of these heritability studies is they're they're really only well-defined within a population. So if you could do some RCT where you take twins and one of them is raised in, let's say, the Congo, and one of them is raised in Norway, well, there are basically zero RCTs that do this, right? right? However, could you make any case that the shared environment on those two people's life outcomes should be zero? That makes absolutely no sense to me. Like what if the other person dies of a tropical disease that they could have been treated for in Norway, right? Can they possibly become a successful multi-billion dollar entrepreneur? It seems much more likely that's going to happen in Norway, even if these kids are genetically the same. So if you actually could take like a sort of global heritability estimate, the shared environment factor has to be absolutely massive. And the pushback on that is basically like, okay, sure, that's true. But what you care about is sort of how much you're affecting your kids' outcomes within like whether you live in the US. It's like, we're not actually going to, you know, go then like take one of our kids and like give them to someone, you know, to raise in, you know, I don't know, Afghanistan, right? Or something like no one's actually going to do that. So maybe what the heritability estimate is telling you is how much each of these factors matter within the context in which you are embedded. And I do think that that's true. And yeah, it comes down to, on average, half genetics and half everything else. How much of that is parenting? We don't really know. I think some of it is parenting. I don't think it's zero. It also feels weird to me because um, a lot of these people who say that like parents shouldn't matter or, or sort of don't matter... A lot of them also somehow seem to believe that like having a great professor in college matters or things like that. (laughs) (laughs) And and these real inconsistencies. Like, okay, so you're telling me the person you spent the most hours of your life with has less effect than this, like basically incidental contact that you had for like a year of school or something? Really? Very bizarre. How does that make any sense whatsoever? So yeah, I think at least with those people, they sort of acknowledge if you're going to do a kind of like weird homeschooling thing where you have a large number of kids and your family's pretty insular and you're doing something sort of weirdly different than the general population. Okay. Maybe then you have sort of opted into some weird edge case where maybe parenting matters. Like, okay. I mean, in fairness, that's closer to us, right? (laughs) Um. I am just personally pretty strongly against sending kids to school. School's pretty bad. Like, I understand that for some people that is an absolute necessity, but I think for a lot of people, they're choosing to do it. And yeah, in that case, yes, you are handing over some of the most critical years of influence to someone else, to some effectively stranger and to some group of, you know, 30 kids who you didn't choose or pick or like... And I basically think parents try to do a proxy version of this by sort of choosing which school district they live in. Yeah. That's a huge game here. It a huge, huge oh, game. And I just look at all that and I think, man, I just, I look at the world today and I think, do I want my kids to be more like the mainstream or <laughs> less like the mainstream? And for me, that's an extremely easy choice. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> my hesitancy is zero (laughs) no that 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 makes a it makes a a lot of sense and you know what has your approach been like has it been just kind of unschooling has it been like encouraging you know your children's interests as they come up like like what does that look like
1: yeah because like i do think it's tough because as children we start with zero knowledge of the world right and so there are probably hypothetical interests they would have that they've never been exposed to and they don't know to ask for So I think one of my jobs as a parent is to expose them to a wide range of stuff. Very, very wide range. Even things they don't necessarily think they would like at first, if they're up for trying something, I'm usually like, yeah, we should try it at least once, maybe twice. And uh, I do think just giving them that that broad base is really helpful, if nothing else, to just identify what things they're going to want to do later. I always wish that I were doing more of this on the margin, you know? Every day is busy. There's always things going on. Right? I always inside myself wish I were giving them a more varied experience. And I actually wanted to like take them on a trip to Europe in the spring of 2020. This turned out to not be possible. Right? There were travel restrictions and COVID happened, which was not the thing when I was planning it in 2019. Um, so certainly there 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 are lots of kind of missed opportunities there but i really try to to see that as my job you know to to just expose them to a wider range of things you know and i'll say they're fairly savvy kids and they're pretty good at finding out that stuff does exist without my help too <laughs> but um but uh yeah i think i think that is one of the major pillars and then once you actually find out what they're interested in then i think my sort of second obligation is to try to sort of give them as much of that as they want to sort of soak up. Got it. So even though I went to schools as a kid myself, when I think about what I was like really interested in and, and spent my time trying to learn, like I was really into math and I was always way beyond the math that was being taught in the grade level that I nominally was in. And I was just sort of doing math on my own for fun. And similarly, I never took a course on like programming, but I, started looking at textbooks and I started just looking at other people's code online. And I started to uh, tweak things. And so a lot of the sort of actual enduring knowledge in my life has just come from this independent exploration. And when I look at that, and then I think about how much time I spent in school, it feels like this enormous travesty that I wasted so much of my time. And yeah, sure. There were valuable snippets here and there. And I liked having, you know, friends and stuff, which you totally get outside of school. But like, mm-hmm. I do think overall that time was mostly wasted and I want as as little as possible to waste my kids' time. So see what they're interested in and then immerse them in it as much as they can handle and they want, right? And that can take any number of different forms and it can be incredibly weird stuff, but it sort of doesn't matter. The idea is to preserve that intrinsic curiosity that drives them to excel in a particular
0: subfield. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. It seems like, uh, yeah, perhaps it's it's something that's missing. Perhaps it's part of the equation that's missing with uh, our lack of Shakespeare's today and uh, uh, true experts is like people just aren't given the time, young enough to explore these things. Too regimented.
1: Yeah, totally. And um, there's a great essay by Eric Weinstein uh, on the Edge where he talks about the pursuit of excellence, and we have excellence crowding out true genius. And I think there's basically something like that going on, where everyone is so driven to sort of do well on the test, that that becomes their entire world. And that really worries me. I actually think that that push is responsible for stifling so much interesting stuff that could be happening. At the same time, I do think that for a lot of people, if they don't have some kind of overarching interest like that, and they don't have the sort of drive and interest and ability to do that i do think taking a standardized test and trying to get into as good of a school as you can is a useful signal whether we like it or not that's still a good costly signal someone who went to harvard frankly probably has demonstrated more attributes of likelihood future success than someone who goes to you know random community college and i think we don't want to admit that cuz it feels yucky to say that But these schools really are trying to sort on various qualities. You know, some of them are more like, are they likely to give money to our school in the future? (laughs) But uh, quite a few are actually things like, are you smart? Are you hardworking? And so I think that college can be considered an acceptable default plan if you don't have something specifically better to do. But I think that decision has to be more intentional. I think you have to actually look at your life and be like, no college makes the most sense for me. And I don't think one should necessarily be structuring their childhood around getting into the best college. That seems like a level of back chaining that is very likely to destroy in childhood. The thing that we need to actually sort of
0: move the world forward. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Do you have any sense of of why it has gotten so intense at the college level? I mean, this was, you know, this is not the case. Um, You know, they pretty much let everybody into Harvard in 1920 that could pass an admissions test. You know, it's pretty hard, but, you know, like pretty much you might could go. It's, but this has completely changed uh, in, in the last 100 years.
1: Yeah. I mean, so I do think the costly signaling cascades can become a runaway selection effect, right, where it has sort of hit a point where at least among certain strata of our society, you're considered a failure if you don't go to college. Right. And anytime you have a system like that, it starts to become a really negative signal to not go. Even if not going actually makes more sense and is actually better for you, it can hurt your life outcomes enough that you're sort of compelled to then try to go anyway. Yeah. And so I do think that those are competitive dynamics that can can happen. Uh, Do I think that that's all of what's going on, though? I don't think that could be all of it. There has to be some underlying logic behind it. And I do think some of it is that college has basically been pushed on a financial level. It's been pushed on a social level. It's been literally sponsored by the government. You can get subsidized student loans to go. Once you start to see systems like that in place, then I start to be like, okay, someone's been messing with something here. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> this is not a sort of purely natural phenomenon. <laughs> um, so I think that's probably part of it. And then I actually think that uh, I basically do buy the narrative that a lot of the kind of economic system in like the post-war era really started to kind of fall apart starting in the 70s. And if you look at so many different metrics, things either slowed down then or they started looking a lot worse then. And basically, I think what what we're hitting is a world where there's a lot more competition for fewer sort of good outcomes. In society. And in that case, I think you get a lot of parents who are seeing this and they feel economically precarious, right? They worry that their children are going to be worse off than them. And the one way to guarantee a good future for their children is you make them go to Harvard. I don't think that's true, but I think that's what's going on in people's heads. And so they are feeling like my duty as a parent, right, is to secure the future of my child. And the only way I can do that is by sending them to college. And to send them to college, it's so competitive and it's so hard. We have to be doing practice SATs from the time they're seven. <laughs> right. And some some version of that, I think, has sort of clicked in, into place now. I am seeing forces that sort of counter this. I do think that the ability for people to, you know, go to a coding boot camp and then get a job, right? I think the ability of folks to start a business themselves, these things have made it easier and i think there are alternatives to colleges that are actually starting to look more viable but we're only in the very earliest stages of that and i don't know whether that's like a population level solution
0: yeah maybe it's like works on like these edges right for you know these specific careers maybe it's not enough for for everybody so so you think it's something where like uh you know we've got this like total factor productivity slowdown yeah there's less opportunities people like rightly sense something like this is going on and so it's like well the best way you can kind of alleviate this is well, the most legible path is, you know, send your kid to Harvard and so you do everything you can to get them there. Cause that's kind of your duty.
1: Yeah. I do think that's a lot of what's going on.
0: That's really dark, but yeah, I, I think that's the, that's <laughs> what's <where> <laughs> Sorry,
1: man. I mean, I think we kind of live in some dark times. So, uh <laughs> and it's weird too. Right. Cause like, our our whole social narrative is that we're living in this era of just unrivaled wealth and prosperity. Yeah. And I think in certain ways that absolutely is true. And yet we don't see that reflected in people's behavior. We don't see that reflected in folks' attitudes. And I think increasingly we're seeing it not reflected in the economic realities on the ground also. But I do think that you know there there does still have to be this case of like maybe we're all just sort of crazy and life has never been better i like that that is a possible hypothesis that I haven't fully ruled out, and I should just mention that it's there because it does have some good arguments behind it. um but like my felt sense is like we are entering a more difficult period and not a like unrivaled uh golden era period
0: definitely well, I think you're. You're you're definitely on the money there. It, it's weird, just just if you look at the rates of like depression, how many people are on SSRIs? I mean, people are like very sad and lonely, and like if, yeah. if we're living in the best time in history, like why does everyone have to be on you know SSRIs? Like I don't know, Indeed. it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. Very, very, very well. Do you do you see any like um do you see any bright lights out of like our kind of general stagnation, or is it just going to be like this long slow slide of decadence? You know, for the next oh. Well century or something i mean we
1: talked a little bit about that at the start right where there could be something that sort of snaps us out of our complacency um it's very hard to know what that is before that actually happens and i do think that if things get bad enough then that produces forces inside of society to attempt some kind of change whether that's going to be a positive change or not uh Sort of remains to be seen. I basically think that that forces society into high variance situations, um, right. and I know this sounds crazy to some people, maybe, but I think the odds of like the U.S. devolving into some sort of like fascist state is not like tiny.
0: <laughs> it's kind of a it's a rational response to like extreme, extreme like yeah, extreme bad times. That's generally how things go, right? I mean, you don't usually stay like a democracy for long when things are going not so hot.
1: Yeah. I think that it's easier to maintain a democracy as long as the pie is growing and there's a lot of gains from trade. But if everyone rightly or wrongly sees the world as being zero sum, then all of a sudden those sorts of deals don't look as good anymore. Because it's like, oh, well, this other person's just like trying to screw me somehow. And once you don't have scope for cooperation, people start to fall back on force and i worry that that's the direction things are heading i'm 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 seeing more of a tendency towards no we actually just have to force this thing through i am seeing that from from everybody i don't think this is actually just like oh you know the evil x or the you know horrible y no i i see everyone sort of going slowly but steadily a lot more crazy and a lot more zero sum and more violent and i do worry that this is kind of going to be the overall trend at least for a while until something turns things around or it goes much worse but it's very hard to predict those kinds of things and something that i think a lot about is if i were living through the 60s and 70s would i be seriously worried that the entire world is about to collapse and i think the answer is like maybe yeah and, like, maybe we almost did. <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> like how, how did we get through the Cold War without somebody nuking somebody? <laughs> like, yeah. Very close. I mean, it was really close. Yeah, it was multiple times, right? So, yeah. you know, there could be some sort of weird anthropics argument for why, like, all of us are still here and most universes were just some, like, smoking crater. Sure, that's possible. I think we probably weren't as close as people think we were, but we can definitely see that with the benefit of hindsight and i can just see a lot of ways that like that period of global upheaval could have gone so much worse than it did and then that sort of naturally leads me to this question of like well okay if we could pull through the 60s and 70s which in an objective sense were much more violent much right. much much more violent than today yeah and they managed to sort of get out of that so it clearly seems like there are ways to turn society around i don't think once you've sort of entered a downward spiral that is always a death spiral. The problem is that it's sometimes a death spiral, and you don't really know at the time which one you're in or not.
0: It's a yeah, it, right. It's very really difficult to tell. Like you know, and, and you know, momentum matters, right? In these things, like, and that's it's kind of scary to me. It's like yeah, it's hard to reverse trend w- with things like this. It seems like
1: totally. I think I think the sort of analogies to Rome are somewhat overdone, but there were multiple points throughout the history of Rome where you could argue that the whole system collapsed or that the system successfully renewed itself and lasted a few more centuries. So the final time that it fell apart, it really did fully collapse. Right. It seemed like it really was collapsing multiple times and then it like revitalized itself into something arguably better or at least arguably more functional for a long time. Right. And you know, as folks like to say, there's a lot of ruin in a nation and it's really only easy to tell that you're in the terminal decline after the fact. You know, there are um, some fascinating letters from the period of the you know actual fall of the Roman Empire where you have, you know, folks saying like, yeah, the roads aren't really safe to travel right now. I'm hoping to visit you, you know, next year when things have. Settled down, oh, no. like okay. Well, obviously that didn't happen, right? But even right. even the people who were living through the fall at the exact moment weren't even completely certain that it was over. <laughs> Couldn't see it, and I do feel like there are just so many instances of this throughout history. So many times where there's been a massive social upheaval, an outright revolution. Every time I look at these case studies, I'm like, man, there were so many things wrong and it seemed like there was this like tiny percent of the population that was basically parasitizing off of everyone else and if they could have thrown them a bone even like a tiny bone they could have like stayed at the top of the hierarchy and you know like ruled forever and they just like couldn't figure out that they were just a hair's breath away from literally being beheaded either it's that inherently hard to figure out or those Dynamics that they were so locked into, right, were just so overwhelmingly powerful that they couldn't steer the ship differently, even though they knew they were headed for certain doom. It's very hard to tell after the fact. But definitely, at least contemporary writings in each of those cases, it seems like the people that were overthrown really were pretty disconnected and didn't realize they were just about to be killed.
0: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you this anecdote. You know, I'm from rural Eastern North Carolina. I made a good amount of money on the, betting on the 2016 election um, yeah. because, you know, I live in this very m- metropolitan area now, highest concentration of PhDs in the, in the world or in my county. Um, but I went back home, you know, like I talked to people in the house party and the, uh, the swing, like the differences in what people would tell you mm. and like just how far apart um, – I think uh, the left and the right are at this point, it is like, it, it can't be, un- it can't be underestimated oh, how far apart it is. When you actually go out, like, you know, I talked to my old friends and it's just like, holy mackerel. Like it is such a, it's a bridge. that's just too far. Like, I think people just absolutely actually just do not understand where we are at this, this point in time. Cause they, they're just so separated between urban I and totally rural. I totally concur, America. man. And, and it's nuts to see that people are living in
1: two completely different worlds. The narratives are different. Even when they think the facts are the same, the interpretations are so different th- that there's no conversation that's, that's even possible sometimes. I find that absolutely mind-blowing. And then how do you come back from that? That's my question. How do you come back from that? Is a true unity campaign actually possible?
0: I think Oprah's the only answer. That's the only answer I have. That's not a very good answer. (laughs) I say it's the only one one who I talk to. Like I I mentioned that and everybody's like cool with her. So, you know, maybe that's uh, the only answer. Well, you know, I have one more question for you along those lines. Um, You know, you worked at the Fed during 2008. um, Yes. And I I really like Scott Sumner. uh, And I I read a lot of his work about, you know, how, you know, the Fed, like, just, just was just, you know, didn't put enough money in the economy in 2008, could have prevented it. They didn't. (laughs) <laughs> um, what's your sense of that? Like, you know, how competent is the t- technocracy, uh, that, that runs the fed kind of runs our money in the U S is it pretty bad? Should I be more bearish than I am? Or oh boy. I'm pretty bearish. Or, <laughs> um, what's your thought?
1: Yeah, man, we, uh, we could do a whole podcast just on this one subject. <laughs> <laughs> well, be back. Um, yeah. So here's what I'll say. My experience having been there during the financial crisis is, The people at the Fed genuinely didn't know what was going on or what to do, which is fair because literally none of us did, right? I don't think think there was anyone in the country who was extremely confident that things would play out how exactly they played out. So obviously, they have a very hard job. And what's expected of them is, I think, actually beyond what's probably possible. (laughs) Gotcha. Now, that said, could they be doing better? Absolutely, yes. (laughs) Um, How competent do I think they are? I will also say I don't fully agree with Scott Sumner either. Nice. I think if you are going to take a monetary policy paradigm that's basically the same one that we've had for a very long time, something like nominal GDP targeting, I think, is probably the best target that the Fed could have. Gotcha. That said, do I think we should be in this paradigm? Absolutely not. <laughs> and uh, do I think that the sort of people working at the Fed have have a good handle on both the broader economy and the way that monetary policy affects the broader economy? I'm going to say no. I think for the most part, the Fed was undertaking actions that sort of looked good or theoretically made sense, that they didn't have any really concrete model of how it was going to affect things. Gotcha. I do think some of the channels by which they're affecting things are real, but I do think that they, I think there's a lot of good harding going on, which obviously makes a ton right. of sense because this happens to everyone. Uh, but they basically are looking at, you know, a few key summary indicators, and then they're turning a few knobs. And those knobs are basically the Fed funds rate, and then how much quantitative easing they're doing and of like what type. And I don't think that they really thought through the transmission channel of how quantitative easing actually affected the economy. And I think if they really fully understood it, that probably isn't the road that they would have gone down. But in short, I think the whole paradigm of the Fed affecting the economy through fixing short-term interest rates, to me, just seems like a real non-starter in terms of what I think something like the Fed should be doing <laughs> like I don't understand why we think a federal bureaucracy should be deciding like how much we'd rather have money today than tomorrow right this this seems like a fundamental aspect of humanity that we need to sort out with a market like the reason we have markets right. is to figure out how much people value one thing versus something else and interest rates are just how much you value money now versus money later. Why that should be the policy target has has always seemed totally crazy to me. Just
0: bizarre. Just just the, the way it is. Probably, it, what's your sense of why that is? Just the way they've been doing it for a while? Is there a certain amount of momentum behind that? And- yeah, there's historical stuff there. Um,
1: if you ask Friedman, he basically thinks, you know, well, thought because he's now dead, But um, his point was, it's always like the quantity of money. And he always thought that the targeting of the interest rate was always just this proxy for how much money was in the system. And that was the only thing that mattered. And that was the actual lever that mattered. (laughs) Right. But they're like, but they're pretending to themselves that, oh, we're changing the interest rate. And that's the thing that somehow matters. But it didn't used to always be that way. And, for a while, like under Paul Volcker, he basically let the rate just start floating and was really tightly controlling the quantity of money. And, you, you know, you saw the rate spike like crazy. But now when you look at Fed funds rates, it's just as like step function, right? Yeah. You basically have the Fed just pegging what it's going to be. So clearly, we didn't always used to do monetary policy this way. <laughs> and 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 yet that was sort of the tool that was settled on. And then during the financial crisis, like, well, the rate's at zero. We can't easily make the rate negative. That's a whole other separate conversation. Yeah. And they're like, well, what do we do? And at the time, we were sort of looking around. We're like, well, what other sort of historical precedents are there? What have folks tried? And we looked to the Bank of Japan, which had been buying bonds. And thus, quantitative easing in the US and Europe was born. Literally, just by looking at what Japan had tried two decades ago, which, by the way, okay, Japan didn't it. successfully get out of their crisis. Right? <laughs> They've had like zero growth and zero interest rates for multiple decades. But we're like, hmm, let's try what Japan tried.
0: <laughs> Give it a shot. Give it a shot.
1: <laughs> so that was really it. And um, you know, there 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 were some more sort of I- innovative responses, but for the most part, the main policy lever that we ended up actually using was quantitative easing, and that turned out to really not have the effects on the broad economy and asset prices that were successfully predicted by the Fed in advance. And it just seems very, very clear that what quantitative easing has mostly done, it hasn't created inflation. It hasn't stimulated the economy. It's raised asset prices, right. and that's basically benefited a lot of people that were holding assets and not really helped a lot of other people. And I think there's a lot of justifiable sort of outrage at the Fed right now. And like, look, I don't think they were doing it because they're trying to, you know, benefit the Wall Street cronies right, or right. their buddies. And like, I don't think they were doing it because they're trying to, you know, screw the common man that like, they, they really genuinely wanted to just help people. They really genuinely wanted to just fix the situation. And it yeah. was... The combination of lack of knowledge and hubris and not thinking things through and genuinely having no clue what to do, like we we have to do something. Mindset, we gotta do something. All of those things, you sort of mix them together and you get a policy response that was pretty bad. And we're still living with that today. Like, why is the Fed buying a majority of newly issued mortgage-backed securities? (laughs) Why? Like no one can give a good answer for for why they should be doing that right now. Yeah, house prices are going absolutely bonkers right now. Right? Why is the Fed buying mortgages? Why is the Fed even in that business?
0: Just bizarre. Just it just it it's just a very bizarre moment we find ourselves in. And yeah, yeah, it's just it just makes you wonder, right? Like, uh, I, I guess. So somewhat bullish on the fact that it seems like people—they're pretty smart, they're pretty competent. You know, you work working there, right? So it's like they're picking up smart people. But would we have been better off just you know letting it ride and and not having done anything in two thousand eight?
1: Yeah. So this is a pretty contentious thing. I'm much more on the side of like we had to just take our lumps up front and then right. recover. And if you do look at the history of the U.S., there were a couple of pretty really deep recessions with basically no yeah. policy response which bounced back really quickly. Now, you could argue that maybe the shape of the economy is different today so that you wouldn't expect that to happen. Like, okay, I can, I can maybe engage in some of those arguments, but it's really hard not to look at, at the sort of whole history and, and think like, did we just maybe just kind of drag out this, this whole thing somehow? <laughs> um, so yeah, my, my, my sort of personal gut leaning is like, no bailouts, take the pain, let's do this. The counter argument that I put somewhat weight on is that the entire system was designed around an implicit guarantee that the Fed would step in if things went wrong. Yeah. And so do you basically want to like rug pull all of the players of this game who had sort of collectively a- agreed to play by certain rules? And, and I think that that's actually a harder question and I don't think it's obvious. So what do you do in that case, right? Can you credibly commit to doing a one-time bailout for the people who were playing under these rules, but then tell them like, no, really, we'll never do it again. Yeah. Right. That seems hard to actually credibly commit to, but something like that maybe would be the like theoretically best policy or something. But, uh, oof. Yeah. That was not a glorious, uh. Chapter in our history, I'll say that. Not the best. And it's just very clear that the Fed has failed to normalize policy ever since then, which is again absolutely bonkers. Yeah, it's just just really bananas.
0: Um, well, we'll run it up on time here. Do you mind if we do a quick round of overrated or underrated? Sure, sounds good. Awesome. So I'll throw a term out. Give me a sentence of uh, why it's overrated, underrated, or maybe correctly rated. Um, cryonics, overrated, underrated. Definitely underrated. <laughs> Definitely underrated. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Are you signed up?
1: Yep.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Trump's effectiveness as a manager. Overrated or underrated? Vastly overrated. <laughs> Vastly
1: overrated. Even by the people who love him? Uh, or or hate him? Uh yes. Gotcha. Um, in some ways, especially by the people who hate him. They they seem to assume that he was far more capable of executing some like crazy big plan. Uh, yeah. Um, than 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 he actually was. I feel like the update should be either that like the presidency itself or Trump specifically has way less power than anyone thought prior to that. And this really should be just as true of his fans as his haters. Um, and uh, if you just look at how, at least how the white house was managed, I don't have as good of a picture on how he managed his like Trump empire, but I'm going to guess yeah. it probably looked somewhat similar, but he, had, he had a very hard time bringing on good people he had a really hard time keeping them there. And he had a lot of people under his management that were actively sabotaging him. So in, in what world could you consider Trump to have been a good manager? It makes absolutely no sense to me. It's
0: like one of the worst I've ever seen. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's brutal. Is, is, is this perhaps a, an exception to your um, rule about you know, companies needing really good, like effective leadership? It's like maybe like if you're just such a good salesman, like you can just like somehow make it
1: well, I did say sales and leadership. I think those sales are and different. Leadership. Yeah. And, and I do think Trump is very good at sales. And he's not shown a really high degree of ability at leadership, right? Like gotcha. how many people are sort of inspired by Trump himself? I do think right around yeah. the time that he got elected, there was like a large rush of folks who were who like, wow, this is our chance. We're going to take back the White House. And we're super excited yeah. for this project, and all this stuff. And that amounted to basically nothing. Yeah. So yeah, Trump is an excellent salesman. Is he a good leader? I just haven't seen evidence that that's true. I think that he was really good at figuring out that the broad US population was extremely annoyed at both parties and that the rank and file member of the GOP felt very differently than the people in Congress did. And he spotted that and he just like blew that wide open. And I think in a certain way, that's actually a service, because I do think we should, in some sense, at least acknowledge the facts on the ground. And he was at least willing to say, like, hey, we're in these unpopular wars that were pushed by, you know, your yes. former <laughs> beloved, you know, GOP presidents. You know, like yeah, the, 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 like he said, the Iraq war was a mistake. And he waved around a rainbow flag. Like he he did all of these things that that a normal... Republican politician sort of would never consider doing ever. And the fact that that worked and was popular at at least has showed us the way forward for what a different version of the Republican party looks like. That's great. And the fact that there was this discrepancy between what the people wanted and what the party elites wanted, the fact that, that, that at least now those two are sort of closer together is probably a service to the country if you like democracy as a form of government because i think on the right at least people are getting more of what they want to see in their politicians
0: (laughs) close that kind of arbitrage opportunity there yep cool Um, overrated and underrated burning man
1: yeah um i still think by broad society at large it is underrated and among hardcore burners probably slightly overrated but not by very much. It's it's, it's really cool. <laughs> it awesome. is so much fun, and it's so beautiful, and it's just, like, out of this world. It is an unbelievable, incredibly fun experience, and I do think pretty much everyone should at least try it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome.
0: Um, Dartmouth, overrated or underrated?
1: Yeah. Um, I feel weird ever saying that an Ivy League school is underrated. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But if we just restrict it to among the Ivies, I'm going to say it's slightly underrated. It is obviously still considered to be a very, very good school. But I think that at Dartmouth in particular, there's more of an emphasis on trying to collect a little bit more of like a wilder spirit, right? It is is more appealing to sort of outdoorsy type people who want to be in the middle of nowhere in in an an environment that is just objectively more harsh. (laughs) And I think... um, I think, I think that, that, that is selecting for something real. And I think that the sort of different Ivy league grads actually have a little different feel towards them. And I think Dartmouth is, is, is probably slightly underrated for that, like wilder personality who's maybe willing to do something sort of
0: risky, sort of crazy. <laughs> love that. Love that. Um, Yudkowsky is a wedding officiant overrated or underrated. Ah. <laughs> oh man. Um,
1: That's tricky because he's also said that he doesn't want to keep doing these. So I feel sort of bad suggesting like, hey, everyone should have him uh, marry them when that's actually not possible. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, unfortunately, he only has so many hours in a day. Um, I'm really glad he did. And the reason that I'm glad is because he really felt like the sort of sort of like elder figure of our community. And he's not even like that old, but he, you know, really felt like a sort of founder of like the modern rationality movement. And so yeah. having him there for me, it was basically like that was that was like the way that our tribe could sort of like give us the strongest bond or something. Definitely. Right. Um, so you know, I would say, yes, it's underrated. I mean, also, I will say he's a very good writer. And so I very much liked him doing our speech. And I think he did uh a really, really cool job there. Um and I like our vows, so yes, I would say underrated. But unfortunately,
0: you're probably not going to get him to do it again. <laughs> so, uh, so, so a good backup career if he solves AI alignment then. <laughs> that right. Good stuff. Um, libertarianism, overrated or underrated? Oh man, um, overrated by
1: libertarians, underrated by the rest of society. <laughs> That's good. That's good yeah i mean look i think I think that you should use libertarianism as a good heuristic and a good first pass, and the default that everyone should should move towards is don't intervene, and then if right. you can come up with a really really, really really good reason, then maybe, but that should be the starting place definitely
0: definitely um Wayne value taxes henry George overrated or underrated so
1: I'm going to say something very uncharacteristic of me. Oh, yeah. Which is, I have actually, honest to God, not done enough of a deep dive to oh, come man. to a firm conclusion on this one. <laughs> 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 I've heard the surface level arguments and I see the fanaticism of the Georgists. Uh, and I greatly admire simple solutions. And I am not yet willing to put my full wait behind it until
0: I personally get more comfortable. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, well, we'll, I'll send you some stuff. I'll tell you, um, Goodheart, the good Goodheart of good Yeah. Wrote a paper, um, a couple months ago, about how um implementing single tax in the US could increase GDP by like fifteen percent. Um, anyway. There, there's there's <laughs> some answers on there, but but I'll send it to you and, and you can you can peruse it. I think you'll sounds find good anything. in theory and I want to understand it better. Yeah. Yes, you should be you should be skeptical if someone says fifteen percent of GDP um, for anything. <laughs> but like that's good. Totally. Um, how to win friends and influence people. Overrated or underrated?
1: Yeah, it would be weird for me to say overrated given that I summarized it on my blog. Um, but in terms of like all of the book summaries that i put up, it's, it's really yeah. the one that I think about the least and come back to the least and recommend to nice. people the least. So maybe it really is overrated. I think so. So why? I guess it it was probably one of the first books that was ever sort of treating the social world as an explicit thing to sort of optimize. Interesting. And so from that perspective, I think it was ahead of its time. I mean, look, it's aged well in that the advice is fairly timeless. But do I consider it like a really good how-to manual where I see someone who's like sort of shy or something and I'm like, hey, you should read How to Win Friends and Influence People. I sort of feel like I've come to the point where that's just never the, the sort of suggestion that I go to ever, which gotcha. suggests that it's probably overrated, unfortunately.
0: Makes sense. Well, maybe maybe it is something like you said, where it just tread new ground, where people had never really done that before. And it was somewhat revolutionary in that sense. But now that everybody kind of knows the common knowledge, it's just less effective. Yep. Cool. Uh, one more. Fasting, overrated or underrated?
1: Ha. So I think that intermittent fasting is fairly rated. However, long fasting, multiple days or even weeks, is severely underrated. Really? Yeah. Um, so me and my wife have both fasted for very long, uh, times. Uh, she's done a few weeks. I've done one month. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I fasted for a month and, uh, it was super intense and awesome. I lost, uh, 28 and a half pounds. I believe (laughs) it's 30 days. Um, which by the way is how you can tell if, you know, someone who claims to be subsisting only on air isn't yeah. losing weight very rapidly. <laughs> Someone is like sneaking them food or juice right, right. or something. Yeah. <laughs> but, but um yeah, no, uh, I think that it is it is outside of the kind of overton window of health recommendations today. Yeah, uh, but if you look at it historically, it is a practice that has actually a fair number of historical adherence. There's a lot of precedent. Um it is interesting because uh, and I do have a short uh, a short uh, post on my blog on this, but most of the world's religions had some kind of fasting tradition and it's been weakened over like hundreds of years and it's pretty interesting to see both of those, but it's very clear that fasting has always been considered something important though yeah. it was largely framed in terms of spiritual importance rather than health importance. but I think that a lot of those old doctrines were actually sort of really helpful for the people who like actually use them because they were in fact secretly benefiting health. Right. And, uh, and so I do think there is something to be said for the fact that fasting has showed up in so many places, so many times and so strongly. And in terms of the longer ones, there was a period actually in the U S where, uh, where folks were interested medically in very long supervised fasts and there's a paper out there the longest fast ever was over a year long oh jesus yeah the guy was grossly obese he started over 400 pounds and he ended at like a normal weight absolutely wild and uh basically the medical community kind of moved on from this research i don't i don't have the full backstory of why but I will note that with a lot of the super long fasts, so it was common for them to do 30 day fasts, but they tended to find if you took someone obese, fasted them for 30 days, they tend to regain weight over time. Yeah. But if you fasted them completely down to a healthy weight, which would sometimes take over a year in one case, and many of these fasts were over like 200 days, those people tended not to regain the weight. It's pretty interesting. So maybe there's some weird selection effect. Maybe there's some profound biological effect. We don't really know, and it's not really been studied now. Um, but I think some of why they stopped doing this is that, unfortunately, in many of these cases, the people that were fasting were getting like weird biomarker readings, which you might expect because they're in a profoundly different yes. physiological state than we than we're almost ever in. Yeah. But they basically started trying to give them various like drugs and supplements and stuff to sort of like shift them back into like more normal numbers. Yeah. And a couple of uh, the people that were doing over 200-day fasts actually died. Oh, God. But as far as I can tell, they died because of the medicine that the doctors gave them. Oh, wow. Um, so it is a little bit unclear. And I think the medical community basically shied away from this as a method yeah. of just pure weight loss. But as far as I can tell, it's actually very effective. So this is one of those things I think where kind of, uh, we see the modern mindset at work. It's like, well, it's effective, but it's maybe not safe. So we're not going
0: to explore it. Right. Did it, did it get easier, you know, like into your month or was, was it like kind of a slog the whole time? Or did you get into like now, ketosis and just kind of roll through it?
1: I should write up a whole thing on the one month long fast. Um, yeah. cause it was very different than when I'd done one week long fast. Um, and it was interesting because I definitely felt like, uh, there, there did hit a point around, I'd say about three weeks in, yeah. where I definitely started to feel like, okay, this is becoming like actually sort of stressful on my body in a, a way yeah. that, that sort of didn't feel as good. Um, and uh, if you do read some of the practical guides written by people who have done month-long fasts in the modern era, a lot of them do often report that there's this like very different sort of feeling that comes on after a certain point. And, um, maybe there is something sort of clicking with our bodies where it's like, okay, this, this made sense, but now I'm starting to dig into something vital or something. Um, I am not completely convinced I was in any actual health danger and I did complete it. Right. But like, I definitely noticed a shift around three weeks in where it was starting to feel more aversive than it was before that.
0: Got it. Very interesting. Very very yeah. interesting, yeah uh, uh, yeah yeah. So so outside of our, our norm modern norms today around like eating and stuff like that, which is which is really cool. Well radically
1: um, outside, <laughs> rad- <laughs> radically outside. So, yeah, <laughs>
0: polar opposite. Um, yeah man, wow. Well, Will, thank you so much for taking the time today. I, I really appreciate it. I learned a ton. It's my pleasure. Where can people find your work? Where should we send them? Oh man, uh, well. I do have a blog, but I
1: so rarely update it. I'm hesitant to even uh, suggest it, Uh, but you can also find me on Twitter, William A. Eden. And uh, yeah, um, it's hard to go into this much depth in one or two tweets, Uh, but you can find uh, pithy snippets of wisdom in the occasional longer thread
0: there as well. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Very cool. Well, um, thank you, Will. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll have to have you on again soon.
1: Sounds good. I look forward to it
0: special thanks to our sponsor Bismarck Analysis for the support Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence grade analysis of key industries, organizations and live players you can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com thanks for listening we'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives